Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 44 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Tim Smith, the CMO at a company called Vormi. Vormi is a high-performance apparel brand that's available in over 50 countries, and they only started eight years ago in 2010. It was a father and his son who had a vision to create something drastically different than the fashion industry had ever seen, and they're absolutely crushing it. They approached the brand with a tech startup mentality, and they really changed the way product is created in the fashion industry, everything from the initial fiber all the way to the finished piece. Vorby uses their own proprietary fabrics that they've developed, and they work hard to push the performance limits of natural fibers. Just a heads up, Tim and I nerd out multiple times on fibers and textiles, so if this is at all interesting to you, you're going to love this episode. Vormi also keeps the entire design and development process close by. Everything, even down to the fiber sourcing and textile production, is done in the U.S., and this has been a huge contributing factor to their success. They also approach fashion with a tech startup mentality, as I mentioned earlier, which means they love doing rapid iteration and testing, and they're always pushing the boundaries of how fast things can be done. It changes the perspective. When you say, no, we don't need to make 500,000 of them, let's start with 500 and let's just see what happens, right? Or let's start with 50 for that matter and let's see what happens. Before we go on to the interview with Tim, I do have one quick update for you guys. Depending on when you're listening, this may or may not be relevant. So if it is not yet March 19th, 2018, then you're in luck. I am hosting a party in LA and I would love to see you there. So if you're going to be around LA on March 19th, check out the party details at sfdnetwork.com slash party. It's a really casual industry meet and greet mixer. There's going to be drinks. I'm going to be there signing books of the book I just released, Ultimate Guide to Being a Freelance Fashion Designer. And it'll be a great way to chat and meet other industry professionals. Again, sfdnetwork.com slash party. That's March 19th. Also, if you are enjoying the show, I would love to have you review and subscribe. You can subscribe from wherever you're listening to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you take 30 seconds to leave a review, as always, I'm very grateful. You can do that at sfdnetwork.com slash review. If you want to check out the show notes for all the links mentioned in today's episode, you can do that at sfdnetwork.com slash 44. Now on to the interview with Tim. All right. Welcome, Tim, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Uh, Can you start by introducing yourself and letting everybody know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Sure thing. My name is uh, Tim Smith, and I work uh, for me doing, uh, well, I guess you could say I wear uh, quite a number of hats here. Um, Basically, everything from technology and fabric work and development all the way through uh, consumer marketing. Okay, awesome. And to start, can you give a little background to like how Vormi got started and and a little more detail into exactly what you guys produce and develop? Yeah, so we started the company in 2010. Um, at the time, it was a it was an interesting time. What I would call for the outdoor industry, um, you know, there was what we perceived as a uh, called a lack of innovation in the market. You know, we had just gone through. You know, an economic downturn. There had been a lot of consolidation in the industry. There had been a lot of, um, you know, call it um, supplier consolidation and supply chain consolidation as well. And, you know, I think it was, you know, really based on the insights of going to, you know, trade shows like the Outdoor Retailer Show and, and seeing what we considered to be, um, you know, almost a sea of sameness, if you will, uh, in, independent of the brand. Um, our founder, Dan English, he um, came from the tech industry, came from software and worked in an environment where, um, you know, we like to say product development happened at the speed of a case of Mountain Dew and an all-nighter, mm. um, and kind of compare and contrast that to the textile industry where, you know, change happened on a, on a one- to three-year cycle. I mean, any, 
the brand at the time was operating, if you will, um, if, if we were in 2010 on a, on a fall 2013 timeline. And, you know, I know one of Dan's passions was to try and bring that kind of tech industry, that kind of Silicon Valley thinking into the textile industry. Um, his son, Dustin, who, um, who was at the time was a mountain guide, uh, basically taking folks up and down Denali, um, you know, what I would call, you know, an expert in, in really fitness for use of, of garments and apparel. Um, also had a passion at the time for, for kind of turning things upside down, if you will, and trying to figure out how to take one, one duffel bag across, um, across everything you do. And so, you know, um, between those two guys and, and then bringing in some folks with uh, textile expertise and background, um, kind of formed, if you will, the, the basis of Ormi. And, and the idea at the time was, was really all about kind of disrupting, transforming, upending the industry, if you will, um, doing it through, um, you know, as I mentioned, this kind of Silicon Valley approach, uh, but then also working in the field of natural fibers and what we like to call engineered textile construction. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was a real fabric first technology first vision to get the company started. And we actually spent the first three years just doing our R and D solely R and D, uh, developing fabric technologies. Um, and it wasn't really until 2013 that those fabrics started to come forward under the, under the Bormi brand. And, and that was really the genesis of Bormi itself was really as a showcase or a, or a catalyst brand in the market to, to take new textile technologies that were, you know, independently developed in a, in a reasonably vertical supply chain, uh, straight to the consumer and, and trying really just buck the trends of the industry at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool that like you guys are this, this, um, at that point, a startup brand in a small town in Colorado, and you're not, you know, North Face or Arcteryx or one of these giant companies, and you guys are really leading the trend on the innovation. I mean, I look through your website, you guys have tons of patents and proprietary fabrics that you've developed that are really, you know, mind-blowing in terms of what's been done over the last 30, 40, 50 years as far as textiles goes. Um, and, and that was no small feat. Like you said, it took about three years of R&D to really process and develop that. Um, you know, how did the market react when you guys kind of first started presenting these really, really groundbreaking ideas and, and fabrications? You know, in a way it was, um, you know, and, and as I mentioned, we had done it with a, with what I call a natural fiber-based approach. And and the, and the premise all along was that, you know, these basic fibers, whether it be wool or cotton or linen or cashmere, you know, pick, pick your natural fiber. Um, you know, we had experienced and believed in these natural fibers for a long time. We also had known their limitations, right? And I think the market was, was in many ways, um, you know, under the same impression. You know, wool is great, but it only takes me so far. And, um, and when we launched the first product in 2013, which was our high E hoodie, it's, it's built off of one of our um, engineer construction platforms where we basically cone it and interlace um, nylon fibers for extra abrasion and durability, polyester fibers for wicking performance, water repellent treatment chemistries that work across all of those fibers and give you true water shedding performance in a wool product. And what we found um, right out of the gate was you know, those folks who picked up and used the products and, and, you know, I say, and, you know, that connection into that kind of Alaskan guiding community, you know, really anchored us within the, within the core community first, you know, what we saw was folks were taking, you know, traditional synthetics that they had, you know, worn or been given or, or through sponsorships been seeded and, and putting them back in the bag and bringing out these natural products, you know, with really what I would call this, this aha moment of, wow, I can actually take something like wool and use it, you know, at least 95, if not a hundred percent of my day, I can work in it season after season. And, and that's what really, I think, provided that surprising factor that caused the, the adoption of the brand to, to happen so quickly. Um, it, was after, it was after that core community basically said, you know, now we can use you know, the, the natural fibers we've always wanted to use, but we can use them in more technical applications, that, that it just seeded, if you will, you know, the next product, the next product, and then the next product. And, and from there, it really just grew you know, very organically amongst that core user community, um, who I think were for years hoping to put down, you know, traditional stuff and move to something new. They just didn't have an option. And, and that for us, that for us was the growth of the brand. Yeah, that's so cool. And I mean, it, it's 
such a really neat thing that you guys have done in terms of like creating this whole new category within the outdoor industry. Um, can you talk a little bit about the actual process of going through that R&D and the logistics? So let's say, for example, someone out there listening has this idea to create this new textile for some category. Like what were actually the logistics of going through that three-year process to like, where did you even start? And then how do you kind of build and, and test? and do all the research. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that process worked for you guys? Yeah, sure thing. And, and that, that somewhat gets back to your question about you know, choosing to put a business in a small town as opposed to a major metropolitan area. And, and, um, and in many ways, you know, we've always said, you know, it kind of takes getting out of the neighborhood to do things differently. And, uh, and for us, that's what, that's what it was about being here in Pagosa Springs. You know, we're surrounded by almost 2 million acres of national forest. We sit right in the middle of it. We're at the base of Wolf Creek Pass. Um, we get, you know, <laughs> with the exception of this year, um, <laughs> you know, the, the bulk of the snow in Colorado. Um, so, you know, around our office, you know, within a very short, you know, in some cases even walk, um, you know, we are hand-in-hand with, you know, the most core, the most, out, you know, um, uh, discerning outdoor users, if you will. And, and that was really intentional. It was, it was this idea that we did not want to create and optimize a, a company and brand around a port city, but rather around the end user itself. And, and, that, and that became very important for us. Um, that, that became critical in the development of the textiles uh, because what it essentially did in combination with a much more agile supply chain, uh, being a more local supply chain in nature, um, it allowed us to rapidly iterate based on end user feedback, right? So, you know, we'll take a, a perfect example would be our, our base layer technology, right? So um, we have a fabric we call, you know, dual surface technology. We have lightweight versions as well. And the basic premise of that technology was let's take a polyester wicking fiber. Let's, uh, you know, deposit it on the very inner surface of a wool base layer fabric. So you get this razor thin looking layer coated, if you will, with this wool thermal fiber, um, you know, for the ultimate combination of wicking and warmth, right? And that was that was the basic premise behind the idea. Um, but but the idea only starts there. We had to take that fabric, make it, and then put it on the backs of, you know, local patrollers, local guides. Um, we had found during that process that, you know, folks were surprised and wowed by the thermal performance and the moisture wicking performance of fabric but came back to us and said, after three days of use without washing it, it was bagging out in the elbows, for instance. Mm. So we said, huh, interesting. So let's take that feedback. Um, let's connect our, our domestic manufacturing uh, fabric supply network, if you will, from fiber to fabric. And let's figure out how to get a little bit of elastane inside that net construction um, to, to create the recovery that, that makes it so you don't have to necessarily wash it every single time. One of the benefits of natural fibers being you don't have to wash it every single time because it's antimicrobial. So, so we inserted a little bit of a little bit of elastane. Um, but when we did that, we were able to because of the way we look at the world and because of our local uh, network of suppliers, you know, basically create you know low, medium, high levels of elastane, put them all out in the field, and within two weeks, you know, a, you know, able to see wow, we've really made a difference here, but we don't have to add so much here that it reduces the total performance of wool or its ability to, to dry quickly. And so, you know, within a couple of weeks, we had rapidly iterated and, and had a new fabric out the door in new base layers for those users, solved the problem, so to speak, and then able to take that to market within months versus seasons and years, because we do have that, you know, that direct-to-consumer model. So, um you know, the process of building fabric, you know, from our perspective, it's really about um, both consumer and market intimacy so that the, the closer you are, the shorter the lead times are, um, the faster you can iterate, the, the quicker you can, you can develop technology that, that is optimized and makes a difference. It's, it's once again, that kind of fail fast Silicon Valley approach, um, which is very, very different than when you're trying to build a, call it traditional model that's seasons and seasons ahead that runs through sales reps and sales cycles. And, and you have, you know, essentially the ability to move the, the boat is, is, is much akin to kind of a cruise ship in that scenario versus, <laughs> versus a speedboat for us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's so many things I want to talk about there. Um, 
just to clarify with the insertion of the elastic, is that part of your guys' precision blending technology that you, that it's proprietary where you put the, the textile exactly where it needs to go. You put the fiber exactly where it needs to go and you don't put it where it doesn't need to be. That's right. And, and for us, that's a huge differentiator in what we do. Um, Can you explain that like pretty quickly in like a layman's terms for people listening exactly how that works and what it means? Yeah, so we um, so when we think about a textile uh, from our perspective, what we look at is is what I would call a really complex three dimensional landscape where you can put things where you want them and not where you don't, right? And so, if you look at a traditional, call it wool polyester blend that you know you find in a lot of places in the market, what they'll do is they'll take the you know call it the hair off the sheep, the wool. They'll mix in polyester fiber in one big kind of blend, if you will, and then they'll spin that into yarn and knit it into fabric. So the the wool and the polyester end up, you know, mixed like a cocktail <laughs> throughout throughout the entire fabric. Um, and and you know, traditionally that's done, you know, really honestly to to, to cut cost in a lot of scenarios because wool is such an expensive fiber. We we look at it really differently. We say, look, we're going to take a pure wool yarn. We're gonna then then we're gonna go basically find high performance pure synthetic yarn. So we'll take like a pure nylon yarn, a pure wool yarn, a pure polyester yarn, and when we go through the knitting process, we're engineering where we're putting those yarns and not where we don't. So for instance, in that base layer that we described earlier, we deposit polyester fiber right next to the skin. So on that surface that's touching the skin, it's probably 95% polyester on the surface touching the skin, mm -hmm. but yet the whole fabric is really 75% wool. And that's because we didn't mix it. We controlled exactly where we put it and therefore we, we can put it in the places it, it means the most. And that allows us really in, in the end of the day, quite honestly, to, to, um, to engineer or control um, the, the fabric such that we still get all the properties we love from wool without compromising them or cutting them with a, with a kind of dumb blending process, if you will. Yes. Oh, I love nerding out on this stuff. It's, it's really, really <laughs> fascinating. And I'm sure we could talk about like that precision blending that you guys do for in the entire hour. Um, but I want to learn a little bit more about like the, you know, you, I, I don't want to gloss over that you guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, but everything you do from sourcing the fibers to making the yarns to making the fabrics to cut and sew is done in the U.S. Is that correct? That is correct, yep. Okay. And so on that note, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting landscape in our industry right now. Most stuff is made overseas and there's been, you know, depending on who you talk to or, or whose opinion you get, um, manufacturing is coming back to the U S and it's becoming easier to do things here. But there, I mean, there's not a lot of textile fabrication done here unless I'm missing something. And so what was like the process like in terms of finding the right suppliers and vendors and machinery and technology to work with to do all of this absolutely from scratch here on our own soil? What was that like? Well, I mean, maybe I, and I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit. I mean, I think if you look at the reason why we chose to do it here, it really was about two things um, for us. It was about speed and it was about impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things we were very passionate about um, you know, with, with the culture of our company is not accepting the traditional norms of, of you know, things being built on multi-year time cycles, things coming across on boats months at a time. So we wanted to build a very, you know, call it fast um, connected supply chain in order to, to put things in front of the consumer, you know, years before we would be able to do it via traditional overseas supply chain. So that was really big for us. The second thing that was big for us was was impact, right? And and for us, it it meant a lot um, coming from a you know an economically challenged rural community here in Pagosa Springs, um, to to wherever we choose to work, um, you know, making an impact locally there. So, you know, creating um, you know creating and training workforce, um, putting workforce next to end users so that so that you can really truly see the impact of your work, mm. um, you know, and, and, and making a difference in that local community. And so, you know, as we, as we look forward and we look at the landscape, you know, I think, I think the problem with the way the industry is looking at, um, at American manufacturing is, is that it's, um, it's what I would call, you know, binary in nature and based upon, 
you know, call it, you know, being able to put a made in the USA label on your garment. And, and from our perspective, I think, you know, that's only, that's myopic in nature and it's only going to allow American manufacturing to grow so fast um, because it's, it's done for, you know, the spirit of it as opposed to the benefit. Um, and so, you know, from, from our perspective, um, you know, if, if American manufacturing is going to continue uh, to grow and thrive, it's, it's gotta be because it's, there's an advantage to doing it. It's got to be because it's more connected. It's got to be because it's faster. It's got to be because it's local. Um, as we look around the world, as we grow, I mean, today we're selling in over 50 countries around the world. Um, you know, it's going to be important to us to make local impact also all around the world. And so, so everything from our perspective will always be set up with, with, with speed and impact as, as really the, the premise behind it. Um, you know, that said, there, to your point, there was not um, yeah, in the beginning, um, you know, there was not necessarily the, the infrastructure to do that. We had to work with the American sheep industry, you know, to really get into the to the nuances of of what at the time was primarily a meat based industry and start thinking about it as a as a wool based industry. Um, we had to look at the benefits of Rocky Mountain High Country Merino wool, which we source, and why it makes sense to grow things in high elevations versus low elevations. Um, we had to work with suppliers, quite honestly. Uh, spinners and knitters that um, that had moved on from the consumer in, uh, uh, consumer textile industries. Um, you know, one of the things folks don't necessarily know is that there are a lot of technical textile industries that still exist here in the United States. You know, whether it's you know um, the the fabrics that go into furniture, the fabrics that go into medical devices, the mm-hmm. fabrics that go into industrial applications. You know, there are folks knitting and weaving um, for all sorts of non-apparel applications here. Mm. They've made significant advancements in technology and capability um, once they got out of that kind of call it race to the bottom that the apparel world has been stuck in traditionally yeah. uh, and, and able to, to sell high-value goods. And so, you know, we had to knock on the door of those folks and, and establish those relationships and say, let's take what you're doing in technical textiles um, that maybe even outside the apparel industry, let's back them into into what we want to do to make apparel better and let's capture the value and, and sell that value to the consumer and ultimately, you know, re-justify why it makes sense to pay for performance apparel because, you know, otherwise, you know, it's just a race to the bottom if, if everybody's just chasing the lowest needle going up and down. Yeah. And so you guys just got creative with where you looked. You said it's not happening in the apparel industry, but these other industries are doing it. And so we just need to go talk to them and make relationships and and see how we can all work together to bring it into the apparel industry. That's really cool. Um, so something you said that I don't want to gloss over, because I think this is a really interesting point and a really interesting sort of angle that you guys are taking with your your sewers and your partners and the people who are, you know, really the hands behind the product getting made is you made the comment that you make sure that and and I'm not going to say it as gracefully as you did, but that you make sure those facilities and those sewers are really close to the the end user and so they get to see the gratification of their work, which I think is such an important aspect, you know, when you have one of the big challenges that I hear from people a lot about manufacturing in the U.S. is the labor. Getting people to actually sew and make the product is really challenging. But when you marry it with the gratification of them getting to see their you know, hard work in use, um, it sounds like that was maybe a key differentiator that you guys very consciously implemented to get the labor and to create this full circle sort of environment. Can you talk a little bit about that or did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct, and I think it gets it gets back to, um, you know, when if you if you look at sewing the way sewing has traditionally been looked at, right in the past, um, you know, there really is nothing sexy about it. Um, in, you know, in in many ways, when it when it left the United States, there were you know large hundred person sewing lines. Um, you know, each person specializing in one thing. Um, so those folks who were sewing were waking up and they were going to work and sewing a zipper in every single day, piece after piece after piece. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, as, as the the next generation of workforce comes, comes into play, um, you know, I think those folks are interested in, in trade, you know, they're interested in learning how to do things. I mean, I think you see that 
more general trend in folks wanting to to farm and weld and have chickens and all the things that people, you know, want to start learning about in, in how things get to be here. Um, but, but in a way it has to be done. Um, so, so as to excite folks. And so, you know, when we have the ability to go into a small mountain town, like we've done here in Pagosa Springs, and, and you can basically have a small team of people sewing, um, you know, we do seek to connect those people. We act, we purposely sit our retail shop and our sew shop uh, in the same building so that those same conversations at retail can be overheard. Um, we have folks who are selling that will work retail one or two days and have to mm. explain to the consumer the benefits of what they're selling. And, and so when we go into a, into a town like Pagosa and we do that, you know, it's, it can be really impactful to connect people to the end user. Likewise, if we're going to connect with a, you know, call it a selling facility uh, that may not be located in a small town, you know, what, you know, the other half of the equation is what can we do to bring technology into the manufacture of garments, right? You know, there's, there's a lot of very cool uh, tech out there um, that we think can change the way in which garments are made um, that makes working in sewing just as exciting or interesting as working in tech. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a matter of, of really, yes, in some cases, connecting the consumer to the sewer, and that's really good where, where we can do that. But where we can't, how do we, how do we also then make you know, bring forward the technology or tech aspect of, of the industry um, and make it, a, make it a career people want to pursue, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as opposed to kind of their vision of, you know, the 1920s sew shop before everything went overseas. And, and, um, and we're kind of working and firing on all those cylinders, whether or not, you know, it's, it's here in Pagosa Springs or with one of our partner factories looking at, you know, how do we, how do we make sewing something that, um, that there's a future to, and there's technical development in as opposed to, you know, um, you know, something that, you know, would be otherwise a dying trade, if you will. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool that you guys are taking like such a, a bigger picture approach to this and creating, um, you know, these amazing jobs and this whole sort of full circle experience where the sewers are right there in the store and, I mean, I think that's just such a neat uh, business model. And I think, you know, potentially a direction that a lot of brands will will start going. Um, You also made a comment earlier about sourcing your wool from the Rocky Mountains in high altitude. And uh, to nerd out again for just a minute, I would love to know, like, what exactly are the differences that you guys discovered and like why the wool has to come from a certain altitude versus, you know, what are the qualities you get out of that? And how did you guys even go about, I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of scientific testing behind figuring all of that out. Yeah. And really, and, you know, and again, for us, it's application driven. Um, so with, with, you know, with things that we started with, which what I will call kind of these workhorse thermal mid layers and base layers. I mean, that, that was really the heart of our brand when we, first came out of the gate, um, you know, the things that matter, we believe the most um, are really, you know, durability, resiliency, and, and thermal regulation, right? You want something that, that is strong, that lasts a long time, and that kind of doesn't overheat you when you're working and keeps you warm when you're not, right? And so um, that's what led us down this path of, of high elevation wool for, for those, specifically for those thermal applications. Um, you know, it if you look at a fiber from uh, what I would call high elevation growing region, like the Rocky mountains, it, it typically has more crimp and, um, and you know, crimp is just a a technical term that's somewhat similar to like when you, when you perm your hair, so to speak, it's (laughs) it's a curlier, more spring like fiber that, um, that doesn't quite pack as tight. And so um, when you take those fibers that are crimpier and you still spin them in a yarn, what you end up with is, it's kind of like a, a whole bunch of these little springs um, all kind of spun together. And, and that creates um, a very cool effect from a thermal perspective. And that it creates these little air pockets inside the fibers that um, if you're you know, wearing your high E hoodie, let's say, and you're skinning uphill and you do get that kind of cool breeze, you can quickly flush that system because it's those air pockets and it helps the breathability. Yet when you then throw a shell over top of it, you know, you get that extra warmth of those pocketed air layers. And so, you get a lot more air exchange or you get a lot uh, in the event of not uh, putting on windproof layers, you get a lot more thermal performance 
um, when you're using it as a thermal mid layer. So, so that crimpy nature creates all those pockets of air inside that fiber that, that we think make a difference. And, um, and then furthermore, if you think about it uh, from a durability perspective, because we want everything we do to be as, as kind of rugged as we think it is here, um, you know, a, a spring can absorb a lot more energy before breaking than just straight, if you will. And so, mm. you know, we find better resilience, better compression resistance, better durability from these crimpier spring-like fibers that you get. Um, and and kind of the, if you will, the, the geek out behind all that just has to do with the effect of sunlight on a fiber. And, um, and I kind of use that analogy of a perm. It very chemically is somewhat like a perm and that the sunlight you know, breaks down those, um, those sulfur bonds between these different molecules and then kind of reestablishes them, um, as, as, um, as call it crimp type fibers. So, so it really is, it's about environmental and sunlight exposure that creates the property and the property is what we exploit for our thermal applications. And, and as we look towards the future, you know, we're going to take a very similar approach as we get, as we start to explore, we've just launched a cotton product um, that leverages some of our construction technologies with the use of cotton. You know, um, you know, we're looking at that natural fiber and we're finding the fiber that does what we need to do. It may be the case that, you know, for a different application, we may want to find a different wool fiber. Uh, so it really is, it's about, you know, engineering the natural fiber, engineering the fibers around it, engineering the placement of all these fibers within a textile to make it do something that otherwise it wouldn't do. Sure. So like, what's the end goal? And then what's the best material that that fulfills that end goal? And that's so interesting. It's actually quite simple. If you think of I mean, it's, it's, maybe you, you explained it in a way that makes it seem really simple. But it's just the fact of like, the fiber having this natural crimp or like sort of perm curl to it versus a straight fiber and the difference of how that really affects the end use of the garment. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's simply put, it's I, I'm just I'm a little bit shocked that it's that simple. Um, I don't know a ton about this much the, of of what goes into a textile. Um, clearly, this is your expertise. Um, but so it seems quite simple to me. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, most things, <laughs> ironically, you know, most things are at, at their heart pretty simple. It's, <laughs> it's um you know, you know it's, us, it's us folks who get involved and make them complicated. But but um <laughs> You know, I think I think at the end of the day, and it gets back to you know, I think a lot of folks tend to look at Vormi and say, "Oh, you're a wool company," and I mm. and I think that you know, in many ways, the center of our bullseye, you know, was winter backcountry travel. It was wool, but you know, I think as we position for the future, and if you were to kind of spend a day behind the curtain in, in terms of what we're working on, I think what you would hopefully see is that we're going to be you know, a tech meets textile company that is rooted in natural fibers and, and leveraging what natural fibers can do um, to, to bring a more holistic solution that, you know, that really changes the way we think about about apparel and maybe even the integration of tech and apparel. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, and you have a background in chemical engineering. You were, pre- I, d- I did a little research, um, and you were previously at Gore-Tex doing this type of stuff. Yeah, I was. I um yeah, I, I started as a chemical engineer, if you will, um, doing, uh, you know, call it polymer chemistry for, for sealing things, um, you know, from a, from water perspective. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, just ended up in the consumer markets and kind of got enamored with that whole world. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, spent almost 11 years of my life there, Gore, doing some, um, some super fun stuff with a lot of cool brands and, uh, and kind of got me, if you will, addicted to the world of performance <laughs> textiles. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, okay, I have a couple questions from listeners um, that they wrote in. So I want to ask you some of those. And it ties in really well to some of the stuff we've already talked about. Um, but Kimberly asks, um, what did you guys find the most challenging aspect of the development and production process? You know, I think um, if if you were to you know, poll each person in our in our office, you, you may get a slightly different answer. But there's going to be one holistic theme, I think, and that's that's folks um, in in what I would call the textile industry. Um, you know, to operate at a at a different pace and, and to operate with a different mentality. Um, you know, I think if you look at if you look at um, you know, take back to this whole Silicon Valley thing, um, you know, the pace of change um, in some of these other surrounding industries is so fast. You know, uh, what folks were doing yesterday is almost irrelevant to what they need to do tomorrow. And, 
you know, I think the textile industry itself has, um, as, as it has historically been a very capital intensive industry, um, you know, you, you very specifically design machinery, you design quality processes, you design, you know, the entire system around, uh, you know, being able to do, you know, thousands and tens of thousands and millions of yards of something um, in these very long production runs with very long lead times. And I think our biggest challenge that we've faced is, is really trying to bring that tech industry mentality into what I would call an, an industry that you know, has been historically set up to do something, you know, much more delivered, much slower um, and in much higher volume. And, and as we, you know, at, we find ourselves at every single turn when we, you know, work with someone new, you know, essentially having to, to figure out how to get that, you know, thing that used to happen in 10 weeks to happen in, you know, 10 hours. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost like you guys are having to retrain all the people that you work with, or, or I don't know if retrain is the right word, but sort of educate them on how your process works and how you're trying to change the way things are done. And that's, that's what they've known their whole life is that it takes 10 weeks. And you're here saying, no, we need it in 10 hours. That's like a whole sort of mental shift for them. Yeah. And, and what we find is that it can be amazingly refreshing for folks um, mm-hmm. when they understand that the, that the constraints of the traditional system aren't there. And so, you know, when you say to someone, no, we will have this garment launched, you know, within 10 hours of receiving it, <laughs> it, 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 it changes the perspective. When you say, no, we don't need to make 500,000 of them let's start with 500 and let's just see what happens. Right. Or let's start with 50 for that matter. And and let's see what happens. Um, you know, for many folks, I think in a way it's, um, it's, it's taking down the fence, if you will, for, um, for folks to say, wow, I'm not handcuffed by the things I was handcuffed before. So, so yes, it can be, it can be challenging, but at the same time, I think it can be an also exciting thing. Um, when you find the right partners to work with, um, from our perspective. Yeah. And so, I mean, cause still, you know, I know brands that, that still, um, deal with long lead times and long production times manufacturing and working here in the States. So like, what's your guys's secret sauce to that? Like you, maybe it's just finding the right partners, like you said, and finding the right people who are willing to work with you and push these, um, deadlines a little bit tighter. Um, do you have like a secret sauce to getting it done that quickly when it seems like everybody else is going so slow? Well, you know, I think, you know, to me, the, the secret sauce, if you will, is, um, you know, it's, it's really in how, and how we chosen to position for me and set for me up. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, if you, if you tapped anyone on the shoulder around the office, you'd, they, they would say that, you know, every day we wake up and think about being the most dominant or biggest or, you know, however you want to define it, um, you know, brand in the eye of the consumer. I think we wake up every day with a passion to, to innovate and be fast. And so that that's what allowed us to say, look, you know, we are going to run special programs direct to consumer. Now, we, we do work with retail partners. We have some amazing uh, partners, in, uh, you know, downstream that we work with that, you know, that have basically say, Hey, look, we're, we love this idea that you guys are quick turn. We love the idea that, you know, we're learning about things and getting them on our racks the next day. And, and those are the kind of partners we want to work with. And yeah. so, um, you know, I think that the key or the magic, if you will, is in being fast and direct with the consumer, whether that's through a retail partner that we choose to work with who wants to work differently or whether that's direct, um, you know, via com. You know, we, we have the infrastructure and ability to do things, um, you know, faster and in a more direct way. And I think what that does is it opens up a lot of things that were previously turned off for a lot of folks um, because it does make a difference when you're running 5 million yards of something versus 500 um, in terms of, in terms of what you're able to go do. Uh, So, so to me, that's, that's the trick. It's, it's setting up, um, you know, a much more, a much more intimate brand that's, that's closer and connected to, to partners and consumers um, than call it the traditional models would have historically been. Yeah. Um, on that note, do you guys, I mean, you started in 2010, you said you took about three years to do the initial R&D on some of your first textiles, um, but we're now in 2018, so about eight years down the road. Are you guys seeing, um, and, and I have this kind of two-part question, um, 
but are you guys seeing any other brands sort of jumping on this bandwagon? Um, I don't know if bandwagon is the right word, but like jumping on this type of business model and really trying to to do what you're doing. Um, that's first part of the question. And then second, um, I'll let you answer the first part. I'll go into the second next. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think one, one of the things that, and, and I'm going to answer it in a somewhat nonlinear way, and that's that, you know, folks a lot of times ask us, you know, who, what brands do you look towards as inspiration? What brands do you look like as affinity brands? And, you know, I think this transformation is happening. Um, if you look at, um, if you look at other industries, I mean, take what someone like Warby Parker did to eyeglasses, right? Yeah. Take what, you know, folks are now doing to kind of call commuter accessories. I mean, you know, this, this idea, you know, take someone like a Mizzen and Maine who's doing, you know, uh, you know, dress apparel made from technical fabrics, but doing it in a direct way to the consumer. Um, you know, it's happening. There is, there is what I would call an emergent next generation of what I call digitally native brands, um, you know, that are out there. Um, you know, we haven't seen that necessarily as much in, in, in call it the, you know, performance or textile or um, outdoor apparel industry. Um, you know, and, and I, and I think that, you know, it's been our goal to kind of pioneer that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that same thing, that same principle holds true. Um, you know, maybe less in our industry, but, but certainly all around us. Yeah. Interesting um, perspective on that. And I think you're right. Like you do see it in these other sort of peripheral spaces. But I, I, I asked that specifically because I don't see it happening a lot. And so I was curious what your insights were. And it sounds like um, you guys are still really leading the the uh, with the flag on that. Um, and so then that leads me to the second part of that question is, have you guys experienced or seen any brands sort of trying to take some of your, um, technological developments and advancements in technology in textiles and sort of knock them off? Or I know you guys have a lot of patented stuff. Um, and obviously that, that lends some level of protection, but you know, you look at some of these bigger companies that have got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and, and, and all sorts of access to to kind of take something that you guys are doing that's really proprietary and cool and then figure out a way to develop their own version of it um has that been a challenge well you know i think it's it's a challenge for any for any industry um you know what i what i would say i mean we're we're very passionate about intellectual property uh we've done a lot of work to to set up you know essentially protective fences around the things we do um you know we um we also believe that, you know, what we did, you know, and I somewhat alluded to this previously, but what we did yesterday is, is almost, um, you know, if you will, in the rearview mirror and we're focused on what we're doing tomorrow. And, yeah. and our goal, our, our goal all along has been to make competition irrelevant um, and, and do that through, through technology. And so, you know, yes, um, you know, it's something we keep an eye out for. Um, you know, that said, we, we do entertain and do um, collabs with folks if there's something interesting or compelling that um, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to some degree, that that helps call it um, to, to grease some of those skids um, to work collaboratively with folks instead of competitively. Sure. Um, but at the but at the same time, you know, from our perspective, yes, secure the right intellectual property, put the right uh, protection in place. Um, that's that's just good business practice and the right thing to do but also be faster um, and and better and more relevant um, than we were yesterday, tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting space because, you know, the apparel industry, the fashion industry is known for things getting knocked off left and right and not being able to protect your your designs. But I think it's it's very different when you go to the more granular level of the technological development of this actual textile that's protectable on a level that, oh, I want to protect this jacket because I put the seam line in the pocket here. Um, it's a whole different animal. So it's just interesting that you guys have been able to create this whole space of of proprietary um, development and then and build around that. Um, definitely really, really cool. Um, all right, I have one more question from a listener. This comes in from Robin, and she says, if you could go back and do one thing differently, what would it be? Pretty vague, but I'm curious. To, I'm, I'm sure you have a fantastic answer. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I mean, there's probably, there's probably a lot of things we'd go do differently. <laughs> you know, um, 
You know, I, here it's funny. I was, I was having an interesting conversation with a friend of mine who was, um, who was, um, you know, started his own real estate development company here or in, in town. Um, sorry, not real estate development, but real estate company here in town. And, um, and we were, you know, we were talking about what it's like to, if you will, pioneer, um, you know, a space that's never really been charted before. And, and in, in many ways, I think, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to connect all those dots moving forward. Um, you can certainly connect them in the rearview mirror and you can see a lot of things in the past <laughs> that, that kind of formed and, and made the way they made it. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's one of the kind of fun and challenging things about, about a business that, um, you know, I think you make your own path as you go based off of maximizing the opportunities that are in front of you. I think that certainly there have been some things that we've done that we're like, wow, we probably wouldn't have done that again. <laughs> but at the same time, they opened up doors that, you know, we never saw existed, sure. right? And so, you know, from our perspective, you know, is there is there one thing we would do different? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things we look back on and say, well, that wasn't, you know, the smartest thing or the best thing to do. But I certainly also don't think we'd be where we are if we didn't do a lot of those things. And so, um, you know, I like to I like to liken it back to, um, you know, we, we laughed this this movie, The Martian, right? So, so, um, so if you read the book, right, there's this whole thing about, um, you know, he realizes he's stuck on this planet. He doesn't have water. He doesn't have food. He thinks he's going to die from solar radiation. You know, there's a lot of things that he doesn't know. But the first thing he knows is, well, if he doesn't get water, he's certainly going to die. So that's what he focuses on first. The next thing is, okay, now I have water. I may still die of solar radiation, but if I don't get food, I'm going to die. And so and then he focuses <laughs> on getting food, right? And, and just progressively figuring out what that next thing you need to do in order to kind of keep pushing forward under the original vision, um, you know, we think is, is the most important thing you can do. So, so yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of hard, difficult things we, <laughs> we did, but um and, and, and yeah, along the way, we've, we've certainly got our bruises for it, but, uh, but I don't think we could have done a lot of things we've done w- without going through some of those experiences, if that makes sense. No, it makes absolute sense. And it's actually something I've been talking a lot about um, with my audience because, you know, my, my journey into the fashion industry was definitely a bumpy, rocky roller coaster ride. But I think, like you said, is that some of those experiences are necessary stepping stones or they open the next window or the next door. And it's the learning experience that you have to go through and you have to make that mistake to get to the next thing. So, um, I absolutely get where you're coming from and, and really, really, uh, great insights on that. Um, so on that note, um, is there anything you guys are working on coming up that you're allowed to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, well, a lot of things we're working on coming up. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, while probably we can't get into the details, we have some, um, you know, I think we have an exciting year ahead of us for 2018. Um, if I can, uh, you know, if I can allude to, to maybe where we're going, you know, I think, I think this idea that, you know, we want to at least transition in the mind of the consumer from a, from a wool company to a company that really looks at the engineering and natural fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's certainly going to be a theme for us moving forward. Um, we've, we've a little bit telegraphed that with, um, with our new San Juan jacket, which is a cotton based version of our core construction technology. Um, you know, we're certainly down that road. We also, you know, we also believe that, um, that, you know, this world of, of technology and textiles is, is going to eventually come together. And, and, you know, we're, we're passionate about that. Um, you know, what the horizon on that looks like, we don't yet know, but, um, but it's certainly an area we're, we're highly interested in. So, um, you know, I think, you know, more than anything, um, you know, for us, it's about, it's, it's about, um, you know, taking the foundation of what we've done by setting up these, you know, agile approaches to supply chains, setting up the, you know, direct-to-consumer stuff, setting up the right partnerships with the right retailers. You know, that's all infrastructural stuff. And for us, 2018 is, is really going to be then about saying, great, the roads are all there. Now let's go figure out how to get on them and go fast. Uh, and, and we're going to look at we're going to look at everything from, you know, you know, advanced natural fiber engineering all the way through, um, yeah, where, where we think apparel is going to be in, in 10 years. Yeah, really, really cool. All the forward thinking you guys do. I love that. Um, all right. I will end with the, with, the, with the question I ask everybody at the end of the episode, and that is, what is 
one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they did? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think, uh, and, and maybe it's an ask, I don't know, but, you know, I think we, you know, we meet a lot of cool folks who, um, who I think have a very cool thing they want to do for the consumer. Um, and, you know, I think one of the, one of the challenges with, with any consumer market, especially, you know, apparel being is, is, um, you know, what does the road really look like to, to go build a brand? Um, and I think, you know, in many ways it's, it's, um, it's romantic in nature. Um, you know, I certainly grew up, you know, at a time when, you know, the cover of Inc. magazine was, was full of entrepreneurs and, uh, and, um, and certainly, you know, it's exciting and challenging and fun, um, you know, but it's, but it's also an amazingly hard and long road, um, and much harder and longer than I think anybody who gets into it expects. So, (laughs) you know, as I like to say, it's like, you have to do it because you love it and you want to make it different. Um, you know, and, and to me, it's, um, it's one of those things that you're going to be in it for a lot longer than you think you're going to be in it. And, um, and so, and so make sure you love it and make sure you wake up every day, you know, excited about doing it and and just as excited about, um, to be a little cliche, just as excited about the journey as you are about kind of, you know, your destination and having this, this thing you've created. It's, it's, um, it's one of those things that I think, uh, yeah, a lot of folks don't, you know, don't really know until they're already knee deep in it. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very true insights. Um, I can sympathize with those firsthand. Definitely. Um, This has been so much fun, Tim. Where can everybody find all the cool stuff you guys are doing? Yeah. So everything we're up to is always on Vormi.com. So we certainly invite um, anybody in your listening audience to come, come check out what we do. Um, do, if, if you want to see what's new, uh, we'd recommend subscribing to our weekly email list. Um, you know, we do offer things and show things to our call it community that we don't do publicly. And, um, and so, you know, in a, in a way that's, you know, coming to homie.com, signing up, getting on that list is, is probably probably the best way to see what's new um, at any given time. Awesome. And that's V-O-O-R-M-I.com. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for chatting. This is really fantastic to hear all the cool stuff you guys are working on and and the journey that has gotten you to where you are and, and a little bit of a glimpse into what's coming up on the horizon. I appreciate your time, Tim. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I appreciate each and one of you here every week listening to the show. Again, I'll remind you, I'm going to be in LA hosting a party and I would love to see you there. Super casual meet and greet industry mixer. Uh, That's March 19th, 2018. If you want any of the details, you can check those out at sfdnetwork.com slash party. And for all the show notes for today's episode, those are available at sfdnetwork.com slash 44. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.